welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your art critic of a host today, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and paranormal artwork. McKillar Art is the art of Mikkel A. McIntyre, a native of Georgia. His work is credited with his fantastic ability to tell the most amazing stories within the canvas. The subjects of his paintings and prints includes all manner of the paranormal, to include imagery of bewitching women, horned beasts, and things that go bump in the night. Join me as we journey within the mist to find out more about McKellar Art and the man responsible for such fantastic imagery, Mikkel McIntyre. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, this is a pleasure. It's it's great to get a chance to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I kind of did some homework and had to cut up things that I I'm familiar with from the art world into kind of explaining and taking apart how my art arrived where it is. So <laughs> that's <laughs> it's a good. Trip. Yeah, because I realize you're an artist focusing most of your work on putting demons and witches on the canvas. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering. Are you aware of what type of music demons listen to? No, gosh, I, I have no idea. But, you know, if I, if I had to guess, I would say anything in the sort of lower pitch, you know, sort of spectrum, anything that kind of lets the mind sort of uh, drift somewhere down darker, I guess, you know. Well, but I did my own research. You did your own research? You. Okay. Yes. And I discovered that the music demons like most is soul music. <laughs> and that yeah, lets you know what an expert so I am in the yeah, art. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm by no means an expert. Um, oh, no. You know, paranormal otherwise or, you know, and as far as art, you know, I definitely took, I studied a lot of art. I, I took something like eight art history courses. Um and a, a ton of other stuff that helped me form the art that I have today. You know, one of the things that artists have to do is they have to learn about, you know, what are the artists before them did? Why did they do it? Why does it matter? Um, because just like with any field, you, you kind of want to build on top of the people that, that came before you. You want to take advantage of that. Um, and, and there's also a lot of science to that too, not just the history, but there's a lot of science behind the way we see things and the objective and subjective qualities of how we see. And I find that stuff really fascinating. So some of that, especially around color uh, and, and shape kind of plays a big part in what I get attracted to when I paint. I tend to try and look at where's the light landing? What is it doing? You know, and, and really kind of imagining it in those ways. So and I have more about that I can definitely share, which I find is kind of interesting as it relates to the paranormal. <laughs> oh, I agree. I mean, I I wanted to mention one special work of yours that was entitled Midnight Girl. Mm -hmm. It shows the silhouette of a Puritan girl basked in the red light within a dark forest. Oh, now, yeah. When I saw this, I got such a Flatwoods monster vibe because of the shape of the silhouette and the story that they tell of the spaceship glowing red in the forest and eyewitnesses encountering it. As you said, you know, visualizing and so forth, do you see a wide interpretation of your work? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's why in my work, I tend to have a lot of silhouettes and I, it might be accidental. Maybe it's intentional, but I think that something that we all connect to around the paranormal is we have this desperate desire to codify and identify what's in front of us. And if it doesn't fit within what we're familiar with, then we will struggle to create an explanation for it. And this happens on a really deep level. And it's informed by upbringing, culture, genetics, all kinds of stuff. Um, for example, when we're born, all of our senses, or before we're born, I should say, uh, when we're in utero, sort of in development, all of our senses are actually one sense. Color, like sight, taste, smell, all of that one sense. It's only after we're born that they start to separate. And in some people, those senses don't fully separate. Some people have a thing, and this is factual, it's called synesthesia. And it's where 
one sense triggers a sensation or idea from somewhere else in the brain. There are some artists, when they hear music, will actually see different colors. And it's a wild mm. phenomenon. For a long time, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, and scientists have assumed that these people were simply just being flowery in their descriptions of how they come up with their work. But it's an actual physical phenomenon. And there's even more evidence to it because... Um, have you ever seen the movie Rain Man? Yes, I have. So With uh, Dustin Hoffman and... Yeah. Uh... Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. So the movie's based on a real guy who, despite what many people assume, did not have autism. He had something else where the, the two halves of his brain did not cross-communicate. Uh, his, his name was Kim Peek, and each of his eyes could simultaneously read one page of a book separately, oh. and he would retain all that stuff. And there is a, a doctor who did a lot of experiments on this uh, phenomena in, in mice and monkeys and eventually humans to understand how do the eyes actually connect backwards into our brain? What does that do? And what does that mean? And here's some weird stuff. Part of our brain is responsible for writing and drawing, and the other one is responsible for talking. One can get input, and it doesn't necessarily share it with the other side. There are actually people who, after they have this procedure where they uh, sever the brain spheres to reduce epilepsy, they did these experiments where they would put a board between their eyes to separate their fields of view so one eye can't see what the other eye is seeing. And they would show a picture or a word on the left or right eye. And the subjects were shown a picture of an orange on the left eye and on the right eye, they're shown the word apple. And when they were asked to like say what they saw uh, from the, the part that does the talking, they would say one thing. And when they were asked to write what they saw, they would write another. Now, the weird part was when they wrote down something like apple, the verbal part of them that said the word orange, they would ask them, why did you write down apple if what you saw was an orange? The brain would compensate by saying, well, I think maybe I smelled an orange. There's actually a part of our brain that tries to work with the wild input it gives to make a coherent world around us. And when it's given input that goes against that, it actually has measures to defend itself. And do you think this ties into paranormal subjects? I do. I do because I think that there is definitely a lot of work our brain does that we're not aware of that helps us identify things in the world around us. And it compensates for things that we don't understand. Most of that compensation comes from culture and language and familiarity with what we've got around us because it's how we we deal with it. So an example of this uh, as evidence, there is a culture in Africa, the Himba tribe, uh, the Himba people. I, I, and don't quote me, I'm not an expert on the science part of all this stuff. They have in color studies, uh, the ability to identify a greater variety of red hues, but cannot differentiate bl blue and green. And it's also in part to their language. They don't have a separate word for blue and green. And so their brain has literally developed to identify reds better because of a, a wider range of words for red than we do. It's the same thing with, I don't know if you know anybody from Russia, but pink is not a thing. It's just light red, but they have more blues. So they're actually better at identifying blues than pinks. And that's wild that your upbringing would actually determine some part of how your brain interprets input around you and how good it is at doing that. So as an example, how does it relate to the paranormal? There's that episode you had of the Roo Guru and Loop Guru, right? Yes. You had a culture coming in from the old world, from France, coming into the new world, right? And settling and after speaking with the local folk, right, the first people, they said, oh, we have a shape-shifting creature as well. Oh, well, it must be the same thing. There was that need to define 
what is this thing and, and to create some foundation of reference for people to go off of. And that's why when we see these sort of weird phenomena, like, for example, uh, the Burning Man of Brazil, there are multiple explanations that seem to sort of fit for why he burned. You know, was it UFO? Was it spontaneous combustion? Was it ball lightning? Or is it simply that when phenomena like this kind of thing happen, our brain is making that desperate attempt to codify what it's experiencing and it's using everything it's got at its disposable to make sense of it. So okay. <laughs> it's sort of oh, wild. So, so, I, no, I have a, a really interesting question then. And is that why most of the people when they see ghosts are always Victorian? Yeah, I think that you're not wrong. I mean, whenever we imagine ghosts, we imagine this era where ghosts were a thing. Nobody mm -hmm. ever sees dinosaur ghosts. Right. But like metaphysically, the logic would dictate that there would be dinosaur ghosts. In fact, there'd be millions of them. Is it that our brain edits out the weird stuff? Is it that ghosts are real? Is it that it's something that when we encounter our our sight is less involved than our mind. And because our mind is so wholly involved, it constructs what it needs to in order to deal with the thing in front of it. And it's a survival thing. It's necessary. It's also the reason why we tend to identify human faces and things around us that aren't a human face. It's a survival trait. We always look for the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. And because it tells us, is it looking at us? Is it smiling? Is it frowning? how should I react? So when you look at like clouds or a dark shadow, we're more likely to see a face or a figure there. And that's why in my art, I like putting a figure that lets the viewer fill it with their imagination. Because I feel that that quality, that mystery is what evokes a sense of the paranormal in what I paint. Um, when you define something too much, just like in a horror movie, when you show the creature, it becomes less scary. Right. You know, some of those really like Jaws, right? Almost go like an entire movie without really seeing the thing. And then they finally do. And it's like, oh, my God, this thing's terrified. I, I, I feel that there's a lot to that, because if we can identify something and codify it, it's not as scary. So. It's so is that what ways. artists such as yourself kind of try and do <laughs> is identify the paranormal and put, put it to form on canvas? It, it, yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've inherited this, inherited this from, you know, the, the artists who came before me. If we turn the clock back far enough, the first art, you know, people in caves, they're doing pictures of deer and bison. And they're going, hey, everybody, this is the thing we ate that tasted good. So if you see it, this is the thing we need to go after. It was a way almost magically of identifying the world around them and having some kind of power over it because it's sort of codified. And, and it's weird because art and even writing to some extent, because of that history has always had its own intrinsic, almost supernatural quality because it's an idea that stays there after the people are gone. And that by itself is interesting the idea that ideas sort of have a life of their own outside of individuals, but more so as cultures and greater societies, that's just wild to me. Um, an example, the symbol of the cross, right? The primary symbol of Christianity. It has roots that go back way further in the occult. Way before it was used as a crucifix, the sign of the cross was always... Uh, meant to delineate a horizon line and a figure on the horizon line. And that figure is sometimes a tree or sometimes a person, but it meant the intersection of heaven and earth as above, so below kind of stuff. And it's, it's been that symbol forever, even before the crucifixion of Christ. And I find that that's interesting was that that was picked up and people chose to identify that as the symbol for Christianity did it have it, its roots because they knew that's what the symbol meant? Or did the idea of that symbol kind of have a universal sort of meaning that people identify with, almost like a color, you know, outside of the events? 
So uh, in the collective subconscious. In the collective subconscious, exactly. So I, I think it's fun taking apart symbols, symbology, and color. Um, an analogy for it would be a chef will go and learn how flavors work together. An artist will go and explore color and really work to see what's in front of them. Is it orange? Is it maroon? What is? What am I looking at? Do, you know, do I give it a name? Because there's you know a nearly infinite number of colors out there. There's an infinite number of symbols out there, and uh, you know it's a lot. <laughs> it's just it's a lot, right? And you know how much of that is sort of tapping into our universal subconscious. An example: almost all fast food chains use yellow, orange, and red because they're appetite-activating colors. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was not aware. So, yeah. okay, then this ties into my next question for you. Yeah. Okay, on your social media in October, you did a video of your work painting Black Phillip from the horror film The Witch in yeah. time-lapse. It showed you going from a blank ca from a blank canvas into this surreal image of the bedeviling goat. Yeah. Do you do you envision each canvas the same way when you approach your work? That it's 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 difficult to describe. I think that sometimes I have I will go into a painting and I will let it dictate to me what is going to happen in there, and that's sort of the freedom of a blank canvas. Sometimes, and this is weird, I will wake up, and it's always something I wake up with, as if I've discovered it while dreaming, but I'm not aware of it. I'll wake up with an idea for a painting. And, I, I, and maybe it's because, I don't know about you, but I tend to do a lot of sort of problem solving when I go to sleep. You know, like that expression, I'll sleep on it. It really rings true for me. I feel like there is, you know how we talked about a minute ago, there are two different parts of our brain, you know, left and right. Sometimes when we're sleeping is the only time that there is this wide and free level of communication between our subconscious and, you know, these other halves. And I think that art really plays into that because when you draw or paint, because you're giving voice to the part of your brain that literally can't speak, it has a therapeutic quality. And in that, you are connecting a little bit to your subconscious. So when I go to paint, there is absolutely parts of the subconscious that come out to play. Either if I came up with the idea of, you know, waking up from my dreaming or I'm letting the canvas sort of show me what it needs to be there. Now, that's not always the case because often when I wake up with an idea, I want to paint it, but I never go in painting without a reference. Most artists need to look at a figure. They need to look at something in order to paint it. And so like everybody else, I'm stuck with what already exists. What do people already know? How do I paint from that and pull from that? You know, and therein lies some of the challenge of that surrealism and paranormal art is how do I take what people know and turn it into something sort of new, like sort of familiar, but just different enough to activate that part of their brain that has to do a little bit of work to sort of let their own imagination come out into it. And yeah, I've, I've noticed that because much of your work touches on the paranormal how do you find the topic of such a dark subject is viewed by the public? I I think that I've I think I fell into it because if you look at um, almost a lot of art, especially art from the masters, and we're talking like the Renaissance and stuff like that, a lot of that stuff was really fantastic and fundamentally supernatural. Uh, you've got painters uh, like uh, Bosch, like doing paintings of hell, and and before that point people didn't know what a demon was supposed to look like and they didn't know what to be scared of. I mean, sure it was written down and it's the same thing with like uh, Da Vinci and Jesus, right? You kind of codified what it looked like. So, you know, when we, when we go and do this kind of stuff, when I go and paint this sort of paranormal, why I'm drawn to it is because I kind of grew up looking at the masters and looking at these classical images and they were always fantastic. And I was sort of drawn to that. And I think that that was in a large part due to the resurgence of fantasy art after the turn of the century, because there was a period where we had Art Nouveau and Art Deco, and we had World War One and World War Two, and for a long time, the art of the fantastic basically disappeared. In fact, it didn't come out back until the 70s and 80s 
along with fantasy games. And okay. the stuff like Dungeons and Dragons had these incredible <clears throat> painters like uh, Frank Frazetta uh, and there and these other artists who were doing these incredibly Renaissance style paintings of really wild, dark, supernatural stuff. And as a kid, when I saw that stuff, I was like, wow, that's so cool. I'm really transported into this other world. And so that became the kind of language that I leaned into as an artist. That was the kind of stuff that I was drawn to into painting. So, and I think part of it also has to do with the fact that when I was growing up as a kid, I didn't live in the U.S. I actually lived overseas. And for a good portion, I mean, a lot of my time, I got to go and see stuff like castles or the, the uh, dark forest of Germany, where people still believe in trolls. Mm -hmm. they, they talk about them like, oh, yeah, trolls did that. You know, it's just some wild stuff. So I think, it, you know, part of my upbringing bringing kind of, you know, drew me into painting the paranormal and just being drawn to that kind of stuff. So. so have you always drawn even as a child? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think when it started, it started with, um, you know, what I found entertaining that was around me. And at the time, one of the first things I think I was drawing was stuff from comics. It was Ninja Turtles and things like that. And the other kids were like, oh, my gosh, you can draw Ninja Turtle. I'm like, oh, yeah, let me draw Ninja Turtle. And then from there, it, it got more serious because I was lucky enough to actually get some uh, private art classes really young. And I, I stuck with, you know, doing it through the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, that some of my teachers really impressed upon me the sort of seriousness of art, I guess, as opposed to the cartoony comic stuff. Not that that's not awesome and serious, but they really wanted, they, they saw what I could do and they were like, we really need to cultivate this talent by, you need to really look at painting and things like that. So. Yeah, because uh, I noticed on one of your prints of the Baba Yaga hut, which yeah. is a classic European witch story that could have it in description. It does sound cartoony, you know, a it house does. that can walk. Yeah, it does. <laughs> in your work, it's definitely a dark image walking through the forest. And you do get the fear that should come when you're talking about the European witch. Yeah. So do dark stories influence you? I think. I think part of it is, yeah, the dark stories sort of captivate me. And I think the reason why it kind of shows up that way in my canvas is a sort of a weird reason. In art, there's a there's a certain style they call chiaroscuro, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but they tend to be very dark images with very interesting plays of light. And I find that because I really like vibrant color, purple, orange, yellow, pink, that stuff, I find that they seem brightest and most vibrant when they're contrasted by very dark elements. So as an, as a part of me wanting to make people, because if you're like a chef, you want people to really taste the, the sweetness in your dessert. Um, you know, like a pinch of salt or something like that. You know how it brings out the flavor in, uh, gosh, what am I, mango with uh, chili pepper on it is actually really incredible or pepper, right? Because it, it has that contrasting flavor. So when I do some of these paintings, I'm looking for stuff that makes that color punch out. And so incidentally, my paintings are dark, but there's always that part of that painting that punches through that's that really bright, vibrant color. And that's where I want to draw the viewer in. I want them to look at a certain spot because, you know, that's a good part of storytelling is you're choosing what you want people to focus on, where the story is going, and then there they explore from there. As a human eye, we'll first go look at um, the greatest point of contrast in the picture, followed by the detail. And that that's just, you know, biologically what pops out to us first. And I think that's why I end up with all these purples and dark trees and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, trying to get the eye to travel through the painting in a way that leads them through it in a way that, you know, the, the artist intends for them to go. So, Yeah. Many of your paintings are of dark forests where you can either see a horned hitcher or a spooky treehouse or even the silhouette of a girl. Do you find that the forest is a popular uh, subject for you? And do you have a location where you're drawing these locations from? I, 
Yes, I do find it is sort of the playground for this, the kind of images I want to tell. Is there a specific forest? I don't know. I think that being a, a native to Georgia, one of the things that we have here in this state is we've got some really nice trees, probably pretty big ones. You go further north, weather tends to take them down. If you hit the west coast, you've got redwoods. But I have always been a really big tree lover. And I guess I'm basically, um, you know, kind of a Bob Ross fan in that. I mean, I always loved watching that stuff. And so I tend to really enjoy doing landscapes. Now, why do I do forests? I think I do it because it's one of the few places where we still imagine the unknown exists, right? An urban environment or even, you know, houses don't necessarily lend themselves to the unknown quite as much as the wild. And I find that there's something elemental about pulling up figures from, you know, from the trees and from these, you know, like the mists or the night and stuff like that. I find that that's an interesting space to go to. So the woods still hold a lot of supernatural mystery to them. Totally. I mean, totally. I mean, we're still discovering stuff about just how forests work because uh, there's the whole mycelial network thing for mushrooms and how trees literally will talk to each other. So mm -hmm. if one tree is missing nutrients, it gives the other tree the nutrients it's missing. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that when people... Uh, leave excrement in a forest, the plant life will identify what's missing in their diet and then put more of those nutrients out, which is some pretty wild stuff. So I, I think that we have a really old connection with the woods and, and the scope of which we don't necessarily really appreciate today. And I think that's why I keep revisiting it with my paintings. And it's definitely got a sort of mystical quality to it because we're talking about Basically, when organic life arrived on Earth, there was just bacteria. And at some point, you know, you've got vertebrae and then you've got fungus. And that it, those are the two big, like plant life and then vertebrae, right? There's the mm -hmm. two, and it, we, but we came from the same stuff. And I find that that's fascinating, you know, that we still have this like genetic connection with uh, forests and trees and stuff. Yeah, your work definitely stands out on the nature around us, but some of your work also makes a statement, such as in The Last Mermaid, which yeah. is of a deceased and pretty much rotting corpse of a mermaid in a polluted river besides an industrial silhouette. Yeah, I so, there's there's definitely a good explanation behind that. I think that, so the context for when I made this painting, in fact, a lot of these paintings that I started, I was... I was in a tattoo apprenticeship in 2020 and we had to have the shop closed for COVID restrictions. And so my mentor at the time said, you know what, everybody just start painting. I want to see some paintings. So I started painting that literally became the foundation of the work that I'm doing now, because it was those paintings that I went to my first show with. When I painted this print of the last mermaid, it was in the middle of all of this COVID stuff, all of the, you know, the rioting that was going on. It was amidst the fact that, you know, the cars were going and, and dolphins were coming back because there was less, you know, boats, you know, fishing. And there was something about, and, and everybody experienced this, there was this feeling that we we're on the precipice of the world ending. And that was a difficult headspace to get out of. You know, and so when we're talking about painting as a form of expression or even therapy, you know, that's, that is why I painted a mermaid with a cat's mask. <laughs> because even the mermaid doesn't have what she needs to be able to breathe. You know, there's, there's no more water. There's no more safe air. There's, you know, there's the encroaching city. And the backdrop of that painting, it's a silhouette that's sort of just this flat two-dimensional wall because it's meant to sort of feel just sort of oppressive and uh, unreal. So... Yeah, it makes it feel like the modern world is basically killing off the wonders and mysteries like mermaids. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, it, it's funny because I don't think I went back to something quite as industrially themed as that painting. I think yeah. I got it. I sort of got it out of my system. and I was like, okay, now, now time to be a little bit optimistic. Okay, because <laughs> 2020 was rough, you know, so. 
So, okay. Yeah. I want to go back to this. So you were actually a tattoo artist at one point. I was in a, I was in a tattoo apprenticeship. I, I left my tattoo apprenticeship for health, personal life reasons. Not that I wouldn't be interested in going back into tattooing and finishing, but I've done a lot of tattooing on myself on fake skin and stuff like that. But I, I have a really big appreciation for how challenging tattooing is and, uh, the history behind it as a result, um, which would be its own thing. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of paranormal supernatural stuff also with tattooing. I mean, there's a lot of belief and religious stuff there as well. And it's funny because if you were to turn the clock back to the late 1800s, uh, it's like one in three women in New York had tattoos. It's like 30% of the pot tattooing used to be much more prevalent across the United States. And it sort of just kind of faded away. In fact, there are British royalty uh, that were known for having these big elaborate tattoos. And a lot of that came out of naval warfare because you had these sailors going around getting tattoos. A sailor would get a tattoo of a sparrow if, uh, you know, they wanted to get home and they'd made a trip out to sea. And there was a bunch of different tattoos that sailors would get for all different kinds of things. Good luck, you know, bad luck, um, all that superstitious stuff. And I, maybe there is something to, when you, uh, when you modify yourself, there's something definitely some of the actualizing, like I am now, I have some amount of control over myself and therefore maybe the stuff that happens to me. So I always found tattooing super exciting and interesting. That's interesting the way you bring that up. Now, you've also painted some inspirations from iconic films and television shows, such as Stranger Things and especially The Lost Boys. Oh, yeah. uh, you did a painting of The Lost Boys bridge that shows the shadows of the others falling, leaving Michael hanging from the bridge. Everyone knows this scene, but it's never shown in the film. But you captured it with your imagination. Does this happen a lot with you? Yeah, I think that I have this. And maybe other artists do this too, but I imagine the setting or the film independent of what's on the film in front of us. And so it's interesting to think about what other points of view or what other cinematography may have existed in another timeline with another filmmaker even. And uh, th that's a fun playground to go as an artist, picking up an image that immediately reminds the audience of the thing you're describing without it actually being a picture that was from that story or media. I, th I think that's it. So an example, another one is the, the Vecna picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Vecna, but he never has the tentacles on his back or the tendrils on his back unless he's in the house. But I liked the background of the red landscape and the broken staircase way more. And that was the color background that I wanted to use. And of course, now, what's it to hurt to suggest that maybe that's something that the character might even do? Uh, also, in a similar vein, that one from Stranger Things, the Star Court one, where mm -hmm. it's got the mind flare over the mall, I don't think it ever looked like that necessarily. I don't remember it doing a. Did it do a thing where it crawled over the top of the mall? I can't remember. Not like that, no. Yeah, but it was, it, it was always inside the mall. Yeah, it, it looked kind of more ominous because oh, yeah. it, it was the, the setting of the mall, that building is very, you know, symmetrical and unlike the mind flare, which looks completely chaotic and it looks like a mess of appendages out of some kind of Lovecraftian, you know, horror flick. I wanted to make it something kind of beautiful. I, and I guess that's the other thing I tend to do in my art. If it's supposed to be scary and ugly and whatever, I'm going to try and make it look pretty. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I definitely see that. I mean, these scenes that you're talking about, they kind of make you think that they came from deleted scenes. Well, yeah, I mean, gosh, now that you say that, that would be that would be a fun way to start to explore some future paintings would be to kind of say, you know, what is maybe a deleted scene from this movie? What was happening in there? What does it fill in as far as blanks in that story? And uh, I, I find that, with a lot of my work, I really love good stories. I really love telling good stories. And that's why I try and put that kind of stuff, uh, you know, on a canvas. 
Well, you had a special experience with the Lost Boys print as well during Spooky Empire, correct? Oh my gosh, it was so cool. So we're at we're at Spooky Empire and we're both running our booths. And I know you y'all were next to me. And uh we were so busy, it was very difficult to get up and leave the booth, you know, because we're we're working and, and doing our job and selling and stuff. But I really, really wanted to get this Lost Boys painting over to uh Jason Patrick. Uh, but you know, I didn't have a ton of time. And at the moment I didn't actually have a lot of cash on me. So I ran over to the celebrity area where they're doing autographs and meeting fans and stuff like that. And I just managed to get up in front of, um, one of his agents and said, Hey, do you think that I could give this to Jason or that he would want to sign it? And she was like, oh, yeah, sure. And it's, it was 60 bucks, you know, to get it signed. I was like, I just don't have that money on me. So, and I only had a very short window. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to say hi and try and give him the painting because it would mean a lot to me if he had it. So mm-hmm. I go up to him and uh, I was like, hey, I want you to have this painting. He's like, what? This is beautiful. You're giving this to me? I just want to give it to you. He's like, no, 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 no. Here, let me sign it. And so he signed it and I lost it. I was so just struck by his kindness and generosity and how generous he was. And it was just an incredible moment. In fact, I started to like well up with tears a little bit. So had there been an opportunity to take a picture with him, I would have looked like a total mess anyways. (laughs) So now I have the original painting of that, the Lost Boys one actually signed by him. One of the coolest parts I love about that painting is And he probably, this is probably his standard autograph. He wrote, never grow old. And I just felt, I really connected with that, you know, that maybe there's a bigger lesson like that. Because Lost Boys, in a lot of ways, it's it's tied to that whole Peter Pan, never growing old story, combined with the ability to fly, combined with the sort of notion of never growing old. There's a lot of overlap there. And uh, I always thought that was a funny, you know, undertone to the movie and and you have a great story to go with great story to go with it too yeah it was awesome it's awesome it's going on my wall it's gonna get framed (laughs) yeah so for many who don't know you operate a company where you do sell your artwork and it's called mckiller art which is a play on your first name can you tell us some of the backstory of how you came up with mckiller art so it's gonna sound funny but and, you know, other artists probably have a better <clears throat> reason why they have, you know, a good name for their company or their art brand. But I play a lot of video games and it was my gamer tag, or at least it was a derived from that. And so when it came to coming up with my company name, I was like, you know, I'm just going to keep this simple. I'm going to go with this. And it ended up working on a few different levels because I guess it, it's just fun and sort of dramatic and uh, it's not difficult to remember. You know, it's like if McDonald's put out a murderer, I don't know, (laughs) you know, what would that look like? Be a killer, I guess. Yeah. So I thought it was, I thought it was incredibly clever. That's why I wanted to make sure you told it. (laughs) Yeah. Now you do, you spend a lot of time going to a lot of these art shows and expos. Uh, How much time do you think you spend on the road each year? Oh, goodness. I mean, I'm usually going to a show once a month, if not twice a month. And for some of those trips... You know, it's going to be four or five days, you know, out of the month. So I've definitely put a lot of miles on my car. And uh, I've, and an interesting thing, I've actually only been able to start doing this since March. So I'm seven months into this new art business of mine, and I'm really loving it. I just love being able to meet interesting people, go cool places, meet other artists. It's been really just fantastic. And so I'm excited for, you know, the other cities that I'm going to get to go to and see. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love driving. I don't know, something's crazy, but a lot of people are like, oh, God, I got to get behind the wheel. It's where I do a lot of thinking. I'd sort of like look at the road, listen to music or a podcast and just sort of imagine stuff in in that sort of empty space that is the highway in front of me. It's really sort of like the essence of sort of being free because you're going somewhere, you know, you're going and doing. Well, how do you choose which works you bring with you? Oh, gosh. Um, it depends, but, um, often I'll, I'll consider the thing that I'm going to. So for example, spooky empire, 
where we met is very horror themed. So I know that stuff that people identify with from known horror or TV show stuff is going to do better there than stuff that's sort of just more, uh, more basic folklore or just sort of dark landscapes and stuff like that. So in preparation for those kinds of shows, I'll go and do stuff like a Stranger Things painting, or I'll do hereditary painting, or I'll do stuff from, you know, uh, The Witch, because I know, hey, this is going to go great with this problem. But first and foremost, it's also something that I want to do, because I've noticed that when you go down the road of, oh, are people going to like this? I got to make art that's good. And it's weird. You, you, it doesn't come out good. If you have to start with saying, I want to make something for me, because when you care about it and you're putting yourself into it, it always turns out better as opposed to feeling like you, you know, have to force it. And, uh, you know, that's something that I, I picked up from other artists. So are you ever surprised? Are you ever surprised when one particular piece, you know, as they say, prize favorite of, of your people? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, there are some where I go, I don't know, you know, I look at that and I go, man, it's okay. It turned out all right. But people will go and be like, wow, that's my favorite. I'm like, and I'm thinking, I'm scratching my head going, okay, cool. I'm glad you like it. I mean, it's not my favorite, but I, and I always, you know, sort of like confused, but also I, I love that. So as an example, I have this one called uh, uh, Cernanos or Kernanos. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's this the silhouette with the the antlers and the horn and it's got the with the this uh, deity typically carries. He's got the um, I don't know what it's called. It's like a half hoop thing. Mm -hmm. I know it has a name in Celtic mythology and then the snake in the other hand. But when people look at that, they go, oh, it's a Wendigo or oh, it's, uh, you know, something else. You know, people will try and codify another way. But, you know, the title is so I painted that because. You know, I find that figure to be very fascinating. And I find that, so it's, this is kind of funny. On a sim symbological sort of level, antlers or horns historically have always symbolized memory or great knowledge. Hmm. Because if you were to take apart the human brain, and you're to look at like the root of our brainstem, it has this sort of weird curling from the medulla outward. And there are parts of it that look like antlers and it's part of like our memory and core function center. And so the idea that these things have these great antlers is sort of to try to tell the story that they have great wisdom and knowledge and memory beyond, you know, what normal people do, which is wild. And it's funny because that specific deity, the figure of Cernanos with the prominent antlers, we don't know anything about this God. And the mm -hmm. fact the name Cernanos is a Latin name from the Romans who named it because they didn't know what the name of the deity was. In fact, they destroyed almost every example of iconography of this god. All up, there's basically just like one or two items left that depict this seated, horned deity with the antlers. And it's just known as the horned one. And that's what Kernanos or Cernanos means uh, in Latin. And I find that's interesting. Like it's completely lost to time, whatever their name was. Another weird, interesting part of that around Scotland, Ireland, there is uh, fossil evidence of stags or deer that had antlers that were something like seven feet to 10 feet wide. They were so And you can look this up. They were massive. And if you were in an ancient culture and you saw one of these things, you would have probably thought, oh, my God, what is that? It's got to be like an omen from the gods. Oh, my God, it's incredible. And they died off. We don't know if they were hunted to extinction. We don't know if the fact that their antlers grew so big that they weren't able to lift their heads and eventually died. I mean, it's, you know, genetics. <clears throat> and we don't know a lot about it. But I think that we have this sort of culture where this, these antlers were like very prominent and they were really important. And they show up in a lot of our myths as a result. In fact, I think that that deity, maybe in a couple others, because, you know, they're pagan and then later uh, turned into sort of demonic things by Christianity, is why when we look at the antlered stuff, we think, 
or the horn stuff, we go, oh, it's got to be, it's of the devil. Wherein, when as in the, in the world of the occult, it represents, you know, ancient or prehistoric knowledge, which is kind of, kind of, I've always found that to be interesting. And I kind of always identified with that. That's a great way to look at it. Hmm. Now, what's it like to see and talk to people who come up to your booth, who view your work and purchase them? Uh, it's it, every time I'm always surprised. And I don't know if I'm going to ever get used to it <laughs> because it's one of those things where, you know, if you were to turn the clock back to over a year ago, the notion that I could be selling my art um, or maybe two years ago was, you know, always a dream, but never a reality. I, you know, have all this experience with art, but I'd never sold an actual piece. And one of my first shows was in New Orleans and it was the Oddities and Curiosities Expo. According to the other folks that were there, it wasn't a really great turnout, but I was just elated the entire time because I sold two paintings and it was the first time in my life I'd actually sold some paintings and it was just incredible. It was an incredible feeling. And the fact that people are like, here's my money. I want this piece of art. I just, I can't even describe what that is. It's almost like somebody caring about you telling them about your dreams, yeah. you know, because you know, it's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's weird, uh, you know, neat. But it, is, it comes from such a part of you that you put this image up there and sure, it requires some like hard work and skill. But the, the idea that it appeals to somebody else, there is that sort of connection that you share with someone who buys your art and the artist because you're both identifying with the thing. And, and that's always really special. And it's very accomplished. You should be proud of yourself. I congratulate you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, you even yeah. have some of your work printed on T-shirts. I mean, I one do, of the best yeah. examples is based on the darkness corrupting Lily in the fantasy film Legend. Oh, yeah. That's such I a great that movie. Shirt. It's so and that's good. a great scene. Yeah, it's a great scene. I think that out of all the scenes in that movie, it almost is... It is the most the Garden of Eden and the serpent and the apple. It's mm. the most biblical part of that film almost, I feel like. Because you could argue that, and if you're not familiar with legend, go out and watch it. You could argue that Lily is the hero because she's the one who has the real test of character, more so mm. than any other figure in that movie. And we tend to sort of identify with the male lead because they're going around waving the sword, Tom Cruise in his underpants, you know, look at me. But Lily, you know, she's, she's raised as the noble. She prefers to be with the, the common folk. She finds the woods fascinating. She gets taken up on this adventure. You know, it's the classic fairy tale stuff. And she's the one that actually has to deal with this temptation, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I joke sometimes that she should have killed the unicorn and, and stuck with the darkness because that would have been a much more interesting story, but <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. And See, so like, like I said, you uh, definitely work on the deleted scenes, don't you? Yeah, I work on the deleted scenes. It's true. That t-shirt design, originally I did it uh, for practice for a tattoo. So oh. in some of my work, my more illustrative work, a lot of it is its foundations are in the tattooing sort of side of me. Whereas, you know, a lot of my other more colorful stuff I do is definitely more painting and uh, less illustrative. I, and I, I do that primarily because I find that at least in my sort of art scene, there there is a lot of illustrative, incredible work. And, uh, you know, and to some extent, some painting and stuff. But I don't see as many people doing original painting stuff. So for me, that's the way, well, first I love doing it. It's for me, it's also the way that I find that I'm able to stand out a little bit. Okay. Well, you're starting to uh, pick up more and more of these shows. I see that you're going to be in Atlanta on February 11th and 12th for the next oddities and curiosities expo. Any other upcoming events we should know about? Yeah. Right after that, the following weekend, I'll be in Charlotte. And if you check on my Facebook page, McKiller Art, super easy to find. I've got a full listing of all the oddities and curiosities expos I've got coming up for the, the next year. And you'll probably be able, if you, if you live somewhere in the Southeast, you'll probably be able to come and find me in my booth and, uh, or check my site. If, if you can't get to one of those shows, I, I do still sell stuff off my website. 
And uh, of course, like a lot of folks, I am going to do a Black Friday special where people can get some prints for for less. So that'll be fun. I'm excited for that. So what do you have coming this weekend? I've got a show I'm doing December 10th at a place called Mutation Brewery, and it's here in Atlanta. So if you're local, you can come check me out. I'll have my my booth and my artwork up and you can come meet me and check out my work and connect the dots from the podcast back to the art. And we can talk about that stuff. I'd be excited to do that. Great. I hope a lot of people do attend. I, I, this has been a ton of fun. Honestly, I, you know, this is really scratching the surface. I mean, there's so much oh, stuff yeah. in the art world connected to the paranormal. I mean, art, honestly, if you ever end up doing an episode of the anguished man, the painting, and it's one of those, maybe top 10 most haunted items in the world next to maybe Robert the doll and some of the other stuff. This painting is super creepy and it's really, really haunted according to the people that have had it in their possession for a long time. You probably, you might've heard about it. I'm not sure. Have you heard I have it? heard about it, but okay. I never considered doing an episode about it, but yeah, with your background and then the research notes I can have. Yeah. That sounds like that would be great. I definitely will do that. I it also like a part two point, if we were going to do one, you know. Oh no, there's going to be a part three because um, <laughs> I kind of at some point I know you have a teaching background. I kind of want to talk to you about the evolution of the devil and you know angels through art, yeah. because the angels that we see that we see in art today is not the same way they oh, no. were painted long ago. Yeah, or or the way they're described in the Bible or you know ancient texts. There's some really wild stuff. You the further you go back when sort of like how they were trying to describe these things that were ultimately indescribable. And you could, you could take that in so many directions, you know, yes. with how they're depicted. And that's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested. Yeah. In that. So if you're interested, I will definitely be having you back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This has okay. been a lot of fun. Absolutely. A okay. lot of fun. Well, for those interested in learning more or seeing this amazing artwork, you can visit McKiller Art on Facebook and Instagram while visiting McKillerArt81 on TikTok. You can also visit his webpage, mckillerart.com, which will list all of his events, merchandise, and even more contact information. While being sure to watch out for the monsters in the night, or jumping off of the canvas, I think this is a great time to bring this episode to a close. I want to give a very special thanks to our guests, Mikkel McIntyre and McKiller Art. I hope you enjoyed today's interview and will come again for another episode. Until then, look a little closer at that canvas when you are looking at paranormal art. You may be seeing more than you expected. Remain constantly curious, everyone. Goodbye.